0: The following podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault and may not be suitable for all listeners. In other words, don't say I didn't warn you. It's every parent's worst nightmare. You tuck your babies in for the night and all seems well. Except there's a stranger lurking in the darkness outside your home. When everyone is asleep, he creeps in through the window, undetected, and steals your sleeping child from their bed, never to be seen again. You can only imagine the grimmest of circumstances. The idea of a stranger taking and harming a child is too terrifying for any parent to bear. Despite parents' concerns, child abductions by strangers are much rarer than most people think. Studies actually show that more than three-fourths of kidnappings are committed by family members or acquaintances of the child. Some experts say that the public impression of child abduction is often exaggerated because the media has sensationalized so many stranger abduction cases that citizens believe stranger abduction is on the rise, that it's an epidemic of sorts, that the fear of American parents over the danger of child abduction is disproportionate to the actual prevalence of the crime, partly due to the nature of the -the around-the-clock media cycles that requires breaking stories at a constant pace, when in all actuality, it's just not that likely. The last comprehensive study showed that only about 115 children per year are abducted by strangers, and the rest by family members or acquaintances. A lot of those stories wind down to a somewhat happy ending. This is not one of those stories. I'm Krista, and you're listening to Episode 3 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. Dickinson Bayou is located in southeast Texas in the San Jacinto Brazos Coastal Basin. Dickinson, aptly named for its founder, John Dickinson, was established from a land grant given to him by the Mexican government in 1824 for the area just north of its present-day location. Around 1850, a settlement was established along the shores of Dickinson Bayou. By 1860, Dickinson had become a stop on the Galveston, Houston, and Henderson Railroad, And by 1890, the town had its own post office registered under its current name. By 1911, the Galveston and Houston Electric Railway Company had three stops in Dickinson, and prominent Galvestonians had established the Oleander Country Club and built homes there. It continued to grow due to its proximity to Texas City, with its shipyards and wartime industries, and later due to its proximity to the Johnson Space Center. But despite all this growth, Dickinson remains a small community, As of 2010, Dickinson's population sat at 18,680. By all accounts, though, it was a great town growing up for 8-year-old Jennifer Shewitt. In 1990, Jennifer was a 45-pound, blue-eyed freckle face with only her left front tooth missing. She had just finished her second grade year and would be starting the third grade within the month. Jennifer loved her school, and she loved learning. Something she didn't love was the dark. Jennifer lived alone with her mother at the Yorktown Apartments. More often than not, she slept with her mother in her mother's bed. And that seemed to be a good arrangement for the both of them. But on the night of August 9th, Jennifer was restless. She squirmed and kicked in the bed until her mother couldn't stand it anymore and finally asked her to go to sleep in her own bed so she could get some sleep. Jennifer reluctantly went to her room and turned on the brightest lamp in the house. She grabbed a few of her favorite books in her piggy bank and started counting out the change in her piggy bank until she drifted off to sleep. Little did Jennifer know, there was much more to be afraid of than just the dark itself. What she couldn't have known to be afraid of was what was lurking there within it. The motion is what woke Jennifer up. The feeling of being carried away. She didn't remember being picked up, She didn't even remember being moved. But there she was, moving down the sidewalk. Confused, she looked up at the face of a man she didn't recognize. He was running down the sidewalk with her in his arms, carrying her away from her apartment. Jennifer tried to scream, but the man covered her mouth and nose with his hand. He placed her on his lap as he sat down in the vehicle and told her everything was going to be okay. He was an undercover police officer. Jennifer wanted to believe him so badly. But she had just learned about strangers in school. Even at eight years old, Jennifer recognized the feeling inside her that told her something was terribly wrong. It was only as they were driving away, though, that the awful truth began to sink in, and she felt true fear. Not the kind of fear she felt when she was alone in the dark, this was different a deep cold sobering fear that makes your insides sink while the blood rushes to your face she had been kidnapped now here's your trigger warning folks the next section of this episode discusses child sexual assault and abuse it is graphic and it is very real They drove past her grandparents' house for another few miles where they finally came to a stop in an overgrown field. Jennifer thought there might still be a chance that everything really was going to be okay. He really could be a policeman. If he really was a policeman, where was his gun, she asked him. He told her that his gun was in the back seat. Whenever she stood up in the seat to look in the back, however, the abductor ripped her panties off. The man laid Jennifer down on the front seat of the vehicle. He began to kiss her on different parts of her body. He then sexually assaulted Jennifer while choking her at the same time, causing her to go in and out of consciousness. At one point when Jennifer woke up, she knew he was dragging her somewhere. She was still on her back, and she could feel his hands around her ankles and the sensation of being pulled while she stared at the stars overhead. She could feel sticks and thorns poking in her back and the irregularities on the ground as it scraped and scratched along her bare skin. He wanted her dead. Needed her dead. Jennifer knew that. Despite the burning stings of the fire ants on top of which he had placed her, Jennifer stayed quiet, and she stayed oh so still hoping he would think that she was already dead. She was going to give him what he wanted. For now. She heard him walk away. She heard the door shut and heard the car pull away. Then, nothing. When Jennifer's mother woke up the next morning, she found Jennifer's bed empty and her window wide open. In a panic, she immediately called the police. With Dickinson being such a small town, there were only a total of about four police officers at the time. Police recruited the help of the local fire department, as well as anyone in the community who was willing to come out and help find little Jennifer, and a massive search ensued.
1: I didn't hear anything. It just I got up in the morning and she was gone. She's the only thing I have. I mean, that is my baby, and I have nothing else. I mean, shes we have... I mean, it's just been us two together, and I, I need her back.
0: Jennifer is four feet tall. She weighs
1: 45 pounds. She has dark brown hair and blue eyes.
0: That morning... As the sun moved across the sky, warmth and light crept across her face. Jennifer opened her eyes. She could see the clouds and see the treetops. She could hear vehicles driving by. And if she turned her head just right, she could even see them. But she couldn't get up. She couldn't even lift her head up and her stirring only elicited another surge of fire ants from their bed. Why can't I get up? Why can't I scream, she thought to herself. She reached up and put her hand to her throat. She felt it covered with a sticky liquid, and she could feel a deep wound. She pulled her hand away into her line of sight, and she could see that it was blood. Blood. Jennifer hadn't realized that during one of those times that she had blacked out, her attacker had slit her throat from ear to ear, damaging her vocal cords and lacerating her trachea. And he had left her there to die in that overgrown field. After a total of 12 hours, Jennifer lay there, barely alive, still fading in and out of consciousness. It was early evening now and beginning to get dark outside. Jennifer could hear the sounds of children playing somewhere in the field. It was that group of children playing in the field that came across Jennifer's almost lifeless body. The next thing she remembers is the voice of the responding officer telling her she'd been found and everything was going to be okay. Jennifer was lifelighted in critical condition to a hospital in Galveston, Texas, where she remained for two weeks. Her back was covered in scratches, her whole body covered in ant bites. The blood vessels in her eyes were all broken and busted, and she couldn't speak because of the wound to her throat.
1: She's in and out, in a lot of pain, and and she cannot talk. So there are some details that we haven't gone into with her, and we hope to later on this week.
0: Doctors believe she would never speak again. But they were wrong. Jennifer Shewitt spent the next 19 years of her life speaking up. After a few days of rest and recovery, Jennifer began working with investigators from her hospital bed to help build a profile of her attacker. Unable to speak, Jennifer began scribbling down notes to help police find her attacker. She'd been wearing a pink t-shirt and white underwear with blue roses. The man was white and wore glasses and had two or three green tattoos. He smoked Marlboro cigarettes. He had a black mustache and he was in his 30s. Jennifer wrote down every little thing she could think of, from the type of car he drove to the location of a scar that she noted on his face. She also worked with a sketch artist. On August 14th, sketch artist Lois Gibson made the drive to Galveston. In an interview with Missing Kids Rescued, Lois told the story of her work with Jennifer.
1: I'd been on the job less than one year when I got the call. It was unspeakable, and I drove down. I just kept thinking, this is impossible that this girl's alive. I can't believe this happened. I got to Jennifer about four days after she was attacked. You could see the mother sort of willing her to live, and everybody, that the staff, everybody like, she's going to live. I have a book with noses and lips and eyes and all kinds of features, and I showed the witness, I showed her these these pages and slowly allowed her to point at the different features
0: lois picked up her books and the two of them got started
1: she at least wanted to engage in this which sometimes children don't she wanted to draw the picture she knew what i was going to do so i'd ask a question and she'd either mouth some words and she, or she'd write and she'd point and i draw like a printer i just start at the top and go down first she gives me the hair and it's brown hair and she gives me a hairstyle then she picks some really dark eyebrows and eyes and then she picked a normal nose nondescript had her pick a mustache and then we got to the lips and the chin needed to have a lot of stubble she saw a scar on his left side i turned it around and when she saw it she shook her head yes I signed it, dated it, handed it to an officer that was there in the hospital waiting for it. I felt confident they were going to find him. It seemed like it took forever, but i it probably did just take a long, one really long, long, torturous hour. It, it was very frustrating, and I'm sorry that she experienced, that she remembers the frustration. Mm-hmm. That's normal but she didn't know it. Nothing was normal about her, about what happened to her.
0: Jennifer's case was pursued vigorously, but evidence at the scene was limited. No one had seen or heard anything, and the only witness couldn't speak. With few leads, little progress was made. In fact, it would be another 19 years before any progress was made at all. In January 2008, Jennifer's case was reassigned to Dickinson police detective Tim Cromie, who started reviewing the case from a fresh perspective. About a month or two after Detective Cromie was assigned the case, a friend of his, FBI agent Richardson Rennison, offered to work the case with the current detective. He would later describe it as the most violent crime he'd ever seen where the victim had survived. As they began their work together, they were pleasantly surprised to find through all the reports and evidence that a significant amount of physical evidence had been gathered. Specifically, detectives at the time had gathered the underwear and pajamas Jennifer had been wearing, as well as a man's underwear and T-shirt which were all found in the field where Jennifer had been left for dead. Renison was able to involve the FBI's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment, or CARD, team. Through CARD, they had access to all of the FBI's best resources, and they were able to send the evidence off to the FBI's state-of-the-art lab in Quattico, Virginia. In many investigations, time is the enemy. Memory fades, people die, and evidence is lost. But in this case, time was on Jennifer's side. The clothes found at the crime scene had been tested back in 1990, but the sample wasn't large enough for conclusive results. But in all that time that passed, newer techniques were developed that allowed DNA to be isolated from a single human cell. Analysts were, in fact, able to obtain a full profile from the evidence. The profile was entered into the Combined DNA Index System, otherwise known as CODIS. They got a hit. The DNA from the evidence matched the DNA of one Dennis Earl Bradford. His DNA was in CODIS because of a previous arrest and conviction in Hot Springs, Arkansas, for a similar crime. In 1996, Bradford had been accused of kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and cutting the throat of a female victim. He was initially charged with attempt to commit first-degree murder, but prosecutors amended the charges to rape and kidnapping. A Garland County Circuit Court jury found him guilty of kidnapping, but was not able to reach a verdict on the rape charges. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison in 1997. He only served four. Bradford had gotten out of prison in 2000 and had gotten married. He now had children of his own and stepchildren and was working as a welder up until he was arrested in 2009. As good of news as it was, it presented another challenge for investigators. How do you place someone that's in Arkansas, in Dickinson, Texas, some 19 years earlier? Detectives were concerned that he could have just been passing through Dickinson. But when they dug a little deeper through local records in Dickinson. They found an arrest report for Bradford from 1987. Detectives started the footwork and found several addresses that Bradford was attached to in Dickinson through school records, and they found a driver's license record for Bradford from 1990. Investigators also found Bradford lived slightly more than two miles from Jennifer's apartment and just a mile and a half from where she was found. He lived in the trailer park down the road, and every now and again he'd come by, you know, and play his guitar. He was calm, not temper, you know, he didn't have a bad temper or anything like that. Now, most people wouldn't consider an 8-year-old child to be the best eyewitness. But after all those years, detectives were about to find out just how good a witness Jennifer Shewitt was. Jennifer's description to the sketch artist of her attacker back in 1990 turned out to be remarkably accurate to Dennis Earl Bradford's driver's license picture from the time. And she had written in her notes... He said his name was Dennis. Texas law enforcement contacted law enforcement in Arkansas and informed them of the situation. Dennis Earl Bradford was arrested on a Tuesday morning on his way to work and extradited back to Texas, where Detective Cromie and Agent Renison would meet with this monster face-to-face. Except that he didn't really look like a monster.
1: Yeah, he would just sit over in a swing over there on the porch and play his banjo. Dennis is a very outgoing, very nice guy, great neighbor. It's probably a shock to everybody with, you know, reading the allegations. It's just, it's bizarre. That's probably a good way of putting it. I'm going to wait and see. I mean, I certainly hope it isn't true. But we'll see what happens with the court system, how the evidence lays out, and just take it from there.
0: He seemed like the normal guy next door.
1: I mean, he's told me I've done some bad things in my days, Ronnie, that I'm not proud of. My grandkids loved him. I, I don't see how he done it.
0: But then they always do. Dennis Bradford had been living in North Little Rock, Arkansas, with his wife and had three adult stepsons, and had been working as a welder in Little Rock.
1: You for a good
0: You guys done your homework. Detectives started off the interview with small talk, but quickly moved on to the matter at hand. You heard name, Jennifer Shewitt?
1: Yes. Okay, hey. Know?
0: Bradford told detectives that he remembered the name from the news about her abduction way back when. Do
1: you ever have occasion to come in contact with her? Yes. Tell me about that? No. Do you know talk about it? No you did your
0: homework at first Bradford wasn't willing to give up the details as to how he knew Jennifer
1: you're right get you know, homework
0: It took a little coaxing from detectives.
1: If you're remorseful about this, people need to hear that. There's two sides to every story. Not a single day goes by where I don't see that baby Be a little f***er. My whole life, for the past 20 years, has been utterly and completely.
0: Agent Renison was able to convince him by pointing out that those details were the only way that Jennifer Shewitt would ever get any closure.
1: I can tell, obviously, a special, but I think you would, if you were to see her, I think you would be extremely proud of her.
0: Bradford told detectives that he had been out just driving around that night, and he'd pulled up randomly into a parking lot.
1: She wasn't anybody. I, knew. I don't remember why I pulled up in those apartments. And I walked over to this window. I remember it was open, and I could see in, and the light was
0: on. Detectives could see that Bradford wanted to get everything off his chest. He wanted to confess, but it was like he just couldn't say the words.
1: I want you to just start talking and tell me everything that you thought, everything that you did, everything that you can remember. I'm ready for this to be over. I'm sick and tired. I'm looking over my shoulder. and being afraid. I pulled the little girl out of that window and I put her in my car. I told that little girl that I was a police officer. That everything would be okay. I pulled off on this little road. And that little girl, she was so scared. I just lost it. I was like a savage animal. I couldn't force myself to say it. It's been haunting you your whole life, Dad.
0: Bradford told detectives that shortly after he kidnapped and assaulted Jennifer, he had tried to commit suicide with a shotgun. But just as he pulled the trigger, he changed his mind.
1: many, many times, many times, I wanted to just end it. And I never had the guts.
0: blew a hole in my dad's roof with a 30 yard six. Finally, Jennifer Schuett was able to come face-to-face with the man who had almost killed her 19 years ago. She watched Bradford through the double-sided glass at the police station. She wanted to study him and observe his mannerisms. Every day since the attack, she had imagined getting her day in court with this man, looking him in the eye and telling him, You couldn't silence me. Bradford was charged with attempted capital murder, which can carry a life sentence. Prosecution began preparing for the trial process, which would most likely be about a year out, 20 years to date. but Jennifer never would make it to trial. Bradford was on suicide watch in the jail for about six months, but he was then moved to general population. Dennis Earl Bradford hung himself in his jail cell on May 10th, 2010. At that moment she felt defeated Jennifer had spent months planning out what she would say to him but Bradford robbed her of that the moment when he hung himself in his jail cell she was still alive and she was still here a scar low on her neck where a breathing tube was inserted to keep her alive is the only visible reminder to the outside world he didn't kill her he didn't silence her then and he wasn't gonna silence her now so on August 10th 2010 on the 20th anniversary of her attack instead of being able to read her victim impact statement in a courtroom Jennifer Shewitt drove to Dennis Bradford's graveside in Texas and read her victim impact statement to him there. Understanding of repentance is that it's so much more than simply acknowledging your wrongdoings and feeling bad about them. It's a true change of mind and heart. It's turning from sin and turning to God for forgiveness. Now, I'm no Southern Baptist. Catholic is probably about as far as you can be from Southern Baptist. But a message I've always loved from the late Billy Graham says. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. Only through repentance and faith can one be saved. I consider myself a woman of faith, so I have to believe there's a chance for salvation for all of us. It's not always easy to keep when you've been in my line of work for as long as I have and seen some of the things that people are capable of. But then my mother always said to me, if you only believe when things are good, that's not really faith, is it? And I know through my own faith that our God works in mysterious and unexpected ways that we may not always understand. So all that being said... I don't know what God had in mind for Dennis Bradford. I don't know if there's enough repentance to come back from a heinous act like that. I know a lot of people have hoped that he's burning in hell. But I can't say that with 100% confidence. What I will say is that after trying to silence Jennifer Shewitt all those years ago, wherever he is, I hope you heard her voice loud and clear. That's all for this episode of Lone Star Law and Disorder. If you enjoyed the podcast, head on over to iTunes or Google Play and subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.